All right, so if you got your worksheet, uh, we're on to topic two, essentially, which is looking at people who haven't heard the gospel. Uh, so you've almost certainly heard this objection if you've talked to unbelievers who are not wanting to talk about the gospel or who are questioning what we believe. And it goes something like this. What about the person in this jungle or this country or this tribe who've never heard the gospel? How can God send them to hell without giving them a chance to repent? So it's really a question of the goodness of God. How could God do that? A good God wouldn't do that, would he? And so that, that's what we're looking at. And I, what I want to do is just kind of break this up into uh, several points that, that I hope give us a, a good response and a good grasp of uh, how, how to look at this situation. And so the first thing I want to start with is that God is not unjust in any situation. And in particular, what I mean is when we're talking about who he saves and who he doesn't save. But of course, he's not unjust at all. But particularly to this question, he's not unjust in any situation. So in other words, it's kind of the wrong question. And you know, that's a common way of responding to this. You may have heard this where you flip the question around. The question, rather than asking why God doesn't save certain people, the question should really be what? Why does God save anyone? Right? So, so the question, the objection is coming from the wrong mindset in the first place, as if God should save any, as if God owes anyone salvation. He doesn't. As if anyone deserves it, right? Which they don't. So we really should be asking, why does God choose to save any? Because the reality is, all have sinned, all are sinners, right? And so everybody deserves, rightfully, God's wrath in hell. Everybody deserves hell, whether they've heard the gospel or they haven't. Right? Everybody, whether they're here, whether they're there, everybody deserves God's wrath for eternity in hell. So uh, I want to just kind of go through some passages to support that, uh, that we're all sinners deserving of hell. That's the starting place. So uh, let's go to Psalm 51.5. I put the verses on your paper so you can just kind of follow along as we go through. Psalm 51.5, written by David. This is after he's uh, been confronted over uh, the sin with Bathsheba. Uh, Psalm 51.5, he writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay, so what this passage is telling us is that he was, you know, you have this idea, sometimes people say, oh, babies are blank slates. They're not sinful, right? They're, they're, but no, this David saying he was brought forth in iniquity. He was conceived. He was a sinner already at the beginning. He was a sinner before he was born. He was a sinner at conception. We all are. And so we can't say at any point that we are not sinners, right? We're born. We're, we're by nature sinners even before we're born. Uh, Psalm 58.3, speaking of the wicked, says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Estranged from the womb, astray from birth. So again, at the very beginning, we are sinners. Okay, well, keep, just keep going through these. Jeremiah 17, 9. Anybody know that one? Anyone have that one memorized? 
The heart is desperately wicked, right? The heart or deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, so that's talking about the heart of an unbeliever. And we all start as unbelievers. We all have wicked hearts, desperately wicked, sick hearts from the beginning. Uh, We'll go to Romans 1 next. We've been here a number of times. I mean, this is a very helpful passage. And, you know, we've read this several times, this particular portion of it. And what this is talking about is God's wrath against unbelievers and that they are without excuse. So right there is is an answer to that question. How can God judge somebody who's never heard the gospel? Well, nobody has an excuse. Nobody has an excuse. And, the, and that's an excuse. I never heard the gospel. That's an excuse. Romans 1 says no excuses. Okay? Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. <laughs> For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So he's talking about the creation, right? The general revelation, what God has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's no excuse because what we see from creation is enough to show us that God exists and to show us many of his attributes and yet people suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So whether they've heard the gospel or not, they're responsible for this, for what God has revealed to them. And if they've rejected that, then they are without excuse. Uh, Keep going in Romans. Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So we're all sinners. Romans 5.12 talks about... How it happened, it happened through Adam, right? We're all sinners in Adam. Adam sinned, and the sin nature was passed down to us. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, I hear pages turning, I'll slow down a minute. (laughs) Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, in fact, the, the fact that we're all going to die, right, unless Christ comes back before we die, the fact that we're all going to die is proof that we're all sinners, right? Death happens because of sin. We're all sinners. We're all going to die at some point. Death entered the world because of sin. It spread to all because all are sinned. Uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 8, 6-8 Talking about how, what you, how we start off. We start off in the flesh. Romans 8, 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Again, talking about what people, what unbelievers are like, what were we were like before we got saved. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that's showing what we were before. We are not, we, people like that are not going to inherit the kingdom, and they should not. That's sinners, right? If they're unrepentant, that, that's their fate. Uh, Galatians 5, I'll, I'll skip on that one in the interest of time, but it's comparing the desires of the flesh, right, versus the fruit of the Spirit. Again, that's what we were. We were those who followed the desires of the flesh, but we've been changed to, for the, uh, by the Spirit, and we now can exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, it says in verse 21 that those who do such things, these desire, follow the desires of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, Ephesians 2, at the beginning of that chapter, it talks about who we were before being saved. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in, what, in, what, in which you once walked, and then you're called by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So everyone is a child of wrath. Everyone is dead in the trespasses and sins initially until God saves them, until first four, but God, right? Until God saves. So the reality is whether a person has ever heard the gospel or not, he is deserving of hell because he is a sinner. God would be just to cast any and all into hell no matter what. So the answer to the question, will God condemn the innocent tribesman who has never heard of Christ? The answer is no, because there are no innocent tribesmen. There are no innocent tribesmen. There are no innocent people. As Derek Thomas says, God is not bound to show mercy to any individual or any collection of individuals. Right? We looked at this last week, Exodus thirty-three nineteen. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then we again looked in Romans 9, which refers to that verse and refers to Pharaoh and how God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his purposes. And he has the right to do that. So the point is that God is not unjust no matter whom he saves and whom he casts into hell. We must start with that. It would be just for him to send us all to hell. To paraphrase R.C. Sproul, some people receive grace and some receive justice, but no one receives injustice. I'll say that again. Some receive grace or mercy, right? Grace and mercy. Some receive justice, but no one receives injustice. No one can rightly claim God treated me unjustly, right? If you're saved, you've received that gift from him without deserving it at all. That's his choice if he wants to show that grace or mercy to whomever he wants. But everyone else who is not receiving that grace and mercy, everyone else who's going to hell is being treated justly. That's up to God. 
R.C. Sproul writes in the book, The Holiness of God, he says, suppose 10 people sin and sin equally. Suppose God punishes five of them and is merciful to the other five. Is this injustice? No. In this situation, five people get justice and five people get mercy. No one gets injustice. What we tend to assume is this. If God is merciful to five, he must be equally merciful to the other five. Why? He is never obligated to be merciful. If he is merciful to nine of the ten, the tenth cannot complain that he is a victim of injustice. God never owes mercy. God is not obliged to treat all men equally. Maybe I'd better say that again. God is never obliged to treat all men equally. If he were ever unjust to us, we would have reason to complain. But simply because he grants mercy to my neighbor and gives me no claim on his mercy... Again, we must remember that mercy is always voluntary. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. There are only two things I ever would receive from God, justice or mercy. I never receive injustice from his hand. And the same would be true for anyone. So any person absolutely will receive either God's mercy or God's justice. The reality is we all deserve justice. But how... How amazing when we don't receive that, right? What an amazing gift. So this objection is often built on the assumption that people are not really sinners and don't deserve hell. And then we assume that God owes it to people to bring them the gospel. Unbelievers are sinners by nature. All of us are to begin life. And they are guilty of rejecting what they do know about God, as Romans 1 makes clear. It doesn't matter how much or how little they know. After all, it is not an issue of a lack of knowledge. It is an evil heart that causes rejection of God. Okay, right? It's not a lack of knowledge. That's what Romans 1 tells us. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. And they have without excuse. All right, so that's the first, uh, my first argument. God is not unjust. Unjust. He's not unjust. He doesn't treat anyone unjustly. No matter what. Some he chooses to save, others he doesn't. But no one can cry rightfully that it's unjust. You either get justice or mercy. Everybody. All right, any uh, comments or questions on that first point before we go to the next one? Yes, Patrick. They might, so I mean, they might try to argue what Sproul was saying that, that, that equal is fair, right? But you'd, you'd, you'd have to point out it's not. That isn't God isn't obligated to treat people that way, right? That's why we, have, we struggle with the, with the parable where he pays some people, he pays everybody the same amount, right? And some worked more and some worked less. And our immediate thing is, that's unjust. How can he do that? And it's like, well, that, and then he makes the point, well, it's, it's his choice. If he wants to, you know, what he, can get, what he gives to people is his choice. He's not obligated. And so uh, here, the same thing. It's like he's not obligated to treat everybody equally. I right? sense that, that might be a sticking point for a lot of people, and they might not really let you get past it. Well, you just have, so you just explain that it doesn't, that every, I mean, it has to start with everybody's deserving of hell. That's what it has to start with. Because if you understand that, then you can never cry injustice. No matter who you are, right? So if, if, you can get, if you get to the point where you understand everybody right, is a sinner and everybody deserves hell, then you have no case to say that, that you should be treated any particular way. 
So that's what I would focus on. Now, again, they can choose to reject that, but that's, that's what I would argue. If you understand everybody's a sinner, everybody deserves hell, then you have no case. Yeah. But that's not the situation. You're talking about people who are guilty of sinning against God and deserving hell, right? It's not like your kids who are just your kids not doing anything, right? The, against you. So. You didn't have to be taught that. No one had to teach a two-year-old to fight over toys or to lie or to hit each other. Nobody taught their babies how to do that. Our yeah. children. Or to touch that that you just told them not to. Yeah, there was a there was a hand up. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, The funny funny thing with this whole argument is it it in itself takes away from the point of why Jesus came in the first place. And I mean, that's that's talking. Let's talk on the grace side for someone who who, who looks at it as such. Is um, you ask them why? So why did Jesus come in the first place? And if they know that Jesus came because we are sinners. Yep. Then that's where you can lead to that very next thing. So that's the doctrine of Jesus. Jesus came because we are sinners, not because we deserve it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Well, we, yeah, because the, we're assuming that, that we deserve something, right? Even that idea that someone else got something, I think, well, I deserve it. So, yeah. All right, so that's the first point. None of it's injustice. We, no one can rightly claim injustice no matter what. Uh, point number two, they, referring to whoever we're talking about that's never heard the gospel, they will never repent unless God changes their heart. Okay, this is, we're talking about the doctrine of election here, which is somewhat controversial for some people, but the doctrine of election is taught in the Bible, and so we must accept it even if it's difficult. The doctrine of election is the teaching that in, ter- in eternity past, before creation, God set his love on certain individuals... He chose some on the basis of nothing in themselves. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. He just chose some because of the good pleasure of his will. Chose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. Um, Just to give you a few verses that support this. uh, John 6, 44. I don't know why the Ephesians passage is before the Romans. That's not in right order, but John six forty four. Somebody read that for us, nice and loud. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, good. Thank you. So no one can come to Christ. And the only way to be saved is to come to Christ, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no one can come to Christ. No one can be saved unless what? Unless God draws the person, right? Uh, Ephesians 1, since it is the next one on the list, I'll just, even though it's out of order. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 since we've been in the book of Ephesians, this is hopefully familiar to us. Uh, Even as he chose in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So Ephesians 1 says that we were predestined, we were chosen before the foundation of the world, before we were even created. We were chosen to be saved. So he chose those who would be saved, right? Adopted to himself as sons through Christ. Those are those who are saved. He chose before the foundation of the world. Where were we involved in that? (laughs) We didn't exist, right? We played no role in that. Uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30 also talks about being predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then we can go back to Romans 9 again, go back, refer to that passage again, what God chooses, right? Like he chose Jacob over Esau. Uh, the same thing with believers. He can choose. He has the right to choose who he saves. And then uh, let's read 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And I mean, this is a big topic. There's a lot more to it. We're just kind of, you know, hitting a few verses to support it. But obviously there's a, a whole lot more you could read about election. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you to be saved. Okay, so God chose whom he would save before the foundation of the world. There are no unknown people to him who might be saved if only he had brought them the gospel. Right? Think about that, because that's kind of the assumption we think. And in a human sense, that's true, right? If only I had been able to bring the gospel to this person in this country, in this little jungle where they've never heard the gospel, that person might have been saved. And that's absolutely true from our point of view. But from God's point of view, there's no unknown person who, oh, if only they had received the gospel, they would have been saved. God's already chosen everybody who's going to be saved. And he's going to bring that person to him. And he's going to use us to do that in many of the cases. So, you know, we have our role to play. But from his point of view, there's no one who, oh, well, he forgot about this person. And maybe this person would have gotten saved. Right? If the person's not chosen, they will not accept Christ. They will reject the gospel even if it were brought to them. Okay? Now, again, we don't know who that is. So we can't use that as an excuse to say, don't bring him the gospel. We'll talk more about that later. But God knows. He's not in that situation, right? Where, where, oh, well, that person might have gotten saved, right? He chooses. So it's not a mystery to God. He draws those who he will save. And it's up to him whether they will hear the gospel or not and whether he will open their eyes to hear it. Okay, point three. Greater knowledge leads to greater punishment for the unbeliever. So this is an interesting thing to think about when you ask that question. Greater knowledge leads to greater punishment for the unbeliever. In other words, the unbeliever who never hears the gospel faces less of a harsh punishment than the unbeliever who does hear the gospel and rejects it. There's a harsher punishment for the more you know and the more you reject. So let's go through. Why, why do I say this? Let's go through the scripture and see if this is really true. 
Greater knowledge leads to greater punishment for the unbeliever. In other words, I guess you could say it like this. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Not everyone suffers the same punishment in hell. Some are going to suffer worse than others. And part of that is going to depend on what they knew and rejected. Okay, let's go to Luke 12, uh, 42 to 48. Luke 12, 42. So uh, Jesus is talking about being ready here. He's telling a parable about servants and a master who leaves, and then he's going to come back. The servants are left to serve. And he says this, The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So we could call that one the obedient servant. But if that servant says to him, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat, drink, and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So there's an unfaithful servant who is disobeying and and 47 that servant who knew his another servant that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating but the one who did not know and did what was what deserved a beating will receive a light beating everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand more So what we see here are are different degrees of punishment. There's one faithful servant, there's three unfaithful. Now let's look at the three unfaithful again. So what are the three unfaithful? The first one knows his master's will and defies his master's will. He parties, he mistreats the other servants, and what's going to happen to him? Cut in pieces and the very serious punishment, right? That's the worst punishment. So the one who knows what the master's will is and defies it is the one who's going to receive the worst punishment. But then there's a second unfaithful servant. Verse 47. What's this servant do? He knows the master's will, but he doesn't get ready. Okay, so he's not quite as bad as the one who's defying and doing all these terrible things, but he's the one who's just like not prepared. He knows what's supposed to happen, and he's just kind of not doing it. So he's not going so far as mistreating all these other people and doing that, but he's still disobedient. He knows what was required. He does not do it. Okay? As MacArthur notes, he was not wickedly defiant, but he was distracted. And so he would receive the lesser punishment, which is described here as what? A severe beating. Okay? But a severe beating isn't as bad as being cut into pieces. Right? Well, there's one more servant. Okay? 48. So, th- so I would argue this is like your person in the jungle who's never heard the gospel. Here's someone who did not know. Now, I don't mean the person doesn't know, because again, with the, we said in Romans 1, no one has an excuse. But they don't know the gospel, right? They, lo- they know less. So verse 48. The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So the one who doesn't do what's right, he's still responsible. 
but he's not held to the same standard, right? He's not punished as severely as the other ones who were told and still rejected what they were told. And then Jesus summarizes the teaching, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And certainly we could think in, in the context of what was going on at that time, largely he's looking at the Jews, the religious leaders who knew a lot and chose to reject him, right? So in particular, that would apply in that situation. But the more you know, the more you're choosing to reject, then the greater the punishment. Uh, John MacArthur explains the degree of punishment for unbelievers is directly related to their knowledge of the truth. The more truth people know, the more dangerous it is for them to reject it. <coughs> Albert Martin and Fred Zaspel write, precisely how the degrees of punishment will be given out is not told to us. But scripture indicates plainly enough that some will have a greater capacity for suffering or that some will actually bear a fiercer measure of the positive infliction of the wrath of God upon them. All the lost will suffer for their sin. For some, that suffering will be worse than for others. And they argue uh, in that article that the basis for the degree of punishment will be based on at least three things. So these are three things they point out that the degree of punishment is related to. Number one is the extent to which a person has abandoned himself to sin. Right? And if you think about it, this makes sense for, for a just God to act this way, right? There are certain people who ha are more wicked than other people. Right? There are certain people who have acted far more wickedly than other people. And it, and it makes sense that a just God would punish those who have acted far more wickedly uh, with greater punishment than those who have not. Right? Everybody deserves hell, but there are some who are worse than others. Okay? So the extent to which you've abandoned yourself to sin will affect the punishment. Now, again, I'm using, uh, I shouldn't say you, because hopefully we're all believers here, so we're not talking about us. But for an unbeliever, if this person's never to repent, if we're picturing a person who's never going to repent and they're going to end up under God's judgment in hell, then the extent to which that person has abandoned him or herself to sin will uh, affect the degree of the punishment. Okay, in Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says, the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Well, have some people done worse than others? Yes. So it's not going to be the same. It's going to be according to what you have done. Romans 2.5 talks about a hard, impenitent hearts. He says, because of your hard, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So people can store up wrath. They can make things worse by abandoning themselves to their sins. Uh, Romans 2.16 talks about God will judge the secrets of men. Well, again, that implies not everybody has the same secrets, right? Everything's going to be exposed. Not everybody has sinned the same. And then Revelation 20.12 talks about that the, the dead will be judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. So people will be judged according to what they have done. Okay, thankfully we will not, right? Because we've accepted Christ and so... He's paid the price. So we, don't, we, are, we as believers are not going to have to pay for what we've done. 
but unbelievers will have to pay for what they've done. And not everyone has done the same thing. So there will be different degrees. A uh, second criteria here that Martin and Zaspel mention is the extent to which a person has led others to sin. So not only the sin that a person has committed in, in their own life, but what, what he or she may have done or has done in terms of leading others to sin. Right In Matthew 18, 18.5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Okay, so there's a, there's a harsh judgment in particular on those who cause someone to sin. And in the context, I believe he, he compares those who enter the kingdom as children. So I don't think he's actually talking about children here. I think he's talking about those who are coming into the kingdom. He's talking about believers, those who cause them to stumble. Okay, so, for, so you, some, who would do, what kind of person could do that? Well, any of us, you know, you could be in a situation, any person could be in a situation to do that. But especially you might have something like someone who's in a position of teaching others could lead to that, right? False teachers. They could be, you could have believers in a church and a false teacher who's leading them astray, causing them to sin. This would be an example of that. You're leading people into sin as a false teacher. Uh, Matthew 23, 13 talks, calls out the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So he's talking about even here, uh, their hypocrisy, turning away those who, who, uh, are, not, who are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, partially because of what these people are teaching and how they're living. And then James 3.1 warns that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So just a warning about when you're teaching, you're in a position. Obviously, this is talking about spiritual teaching in a church. You're in a position where you have influence on others. So you have to take that really seriously. And if someone is a false teacher, then they will be judged with greater strictness because they're in a position of teaching. And so we see that the extent to which a person has led others astray is also a concern, is also a factor in the degrees of punishment. Okay, um, any thoughts or questions at this point? All right, then let's go to the next point. Uh, the third criteria they give is the extent to which light and privilege have been abused. So this is the one we were talking about in particular. Basically, what you know. What has been revealed to you, and again, I'm using you as the person who's the unbeliever, just the general person. What has been revealed to that person that they've rejected? The more they know and the more they reject, the more they're responsible for. Okay, so let's go to Matthew 10.15. Jesus sends the apostles out to Israel, right, to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says in verse 6, he sends them out. And of course, you know that, that by and large, the, the people of Israel rejected Christ. And it was often the Gentiles who were more uh, able to accept Christ. And then at the end here, he says in verse 15, for these uh, cities and villages that are going to refuse 
the message that the apostles bring. He says, it will be more, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Okay, so my understanding on that passage would be he's saying then the judgment for that town will be harsher than the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's interesting because Sodom and Gomorrah is a, was a notoriously wicked city, right? Or cities. They were notoriously wicked. And yet he's saying that these Jewish villages, these people here are going to face worse judgment. Why are they going to face worse judgment? Because they're accountable to what's been revealed to them, right? Not only did they have the scriptures, they had Christ coming and bringing them the message. They knew all this. They were waiting for the coming Messiah. He's here. They reject him, right? So it's a harsher punishment. Uh, same thing in the Matthew 11 passage. Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the mighty works done had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So again, harsher judgment for those who had more revealed to them and rejected him. And then the kind of the ultimate of that is Matthew 12 with the unpardonable sin. Now that could be a whole, a whole class or two all on its own. So we can't get too much into the unpardonable sin. There are some different views on it. Um, but one, one of the, uh, you know, what is it, can it be done today is a big question. So a lot of people would argue um, that it was a unique sin of that time. And, and I, I, would, I agree that that exact sin can't happen now. But there are things that are similar that we read about in Hebrews, for example, and so, but what was going on in Matthew 12 in particular is Jesus was walking in the midst of these people, doing the miracles by the Spirit. And they were rejecting this clear proof of who he is, knowing all they knew, hard-hearted rejection of the truth and attributing it to the work of Satan. And God, at that point, turns them over to their sin. And he judges and he says, you, 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 you've blasphemed the Spirit. This will not be forgiven. So that's a very serious sin. In other words, that's a more serious sin than other sins, right? I mean, how many other sins does he say that will not be forgiven, right? I mean, in the end, ultimately, anyone who rejects Christ, ultimately in their life, you know, they're really coming to the same point. You know, they're rejecting and they won't be forgiven um, for their sin. But these people were hard-heartedly rejecting Christ when he was right in front of them, working the miracles and you know, that's not something that we can exactly see today because Christ isn't walking among us. But that is a harsher judgment because that is a worse sin. The unpardonable sin in Matthew 12. Uh, some of these other passages are just uh, same, the same ones in the other gospel accounts. Um, we mentioned the Luke 12, the one, who, the one who knew what the master said is punished greater than the one who doesn't. Uh, Jesus in John 19 says about to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus said that those who turned Jesus over to Pilate had the greater sin than Pilate. Why? Because they knew, right? He was their Messiah. They knew. They knew what to look for. They knew he was coming. And... They rejected him. They hated him. They wanted their power. They wanted what they had. And they, they sent him to be killed. They manipulated Pilate, right? All these reasons. But, but all that to say, there are greater sins and lesser sins, right? And this is a greater sin that they're going to be held more accountable than Pilate. And I would infer from that, they're going to have greater punishment 
in hell than Pilate would because they have committed the greater sin. Um, so then I, a couple Hebrews passages are there, uh, which are, again, this is, I think, the closest that you read of, of maybe like similar to the unpardonable sin that someone could commit now. Uh, Hebrews 6. So this is really talking about people who are, who are in the church, who've, who've uh, you know, learned, they've seen the spirit working, they've, they've been taught. They've been a part of the church and now they're being tempted to reject Christ and go back to Judaism to avoid persecution. And the author of Hebrews is warning them that uh, if you turn away, if you reject Christ after all of these things, then, then, then you're not going to be able to be, to be brought back because what else is going to be revealed to you but what you've already seen? Yeah. So that's even more of a Yeah, and what would be, what else could be revealed to you? You know, you've already seen it all. What else are you going to, right? What else? So Hebrews 6, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them against, again to repentance. So he's saying, you know, if they've, re- just, if they've rejected all of this, what, what other hope is there left for them? And uh, also uh, Hebrews 10 talks about if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And he talks about uh, worse punishment, uh, 1029. So again, this is talking about there are harsher punishments for worse sins. Hebrews 1029. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has, he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So, yeah. So then that leads that question of, like in the church's teaching on as far as home, uh, backsliding. Mm-hmm. So, Is yours related to her question? Go ahead. I think so. Go for it. Uh, so if we go back to point two, to they will never repent unless God changes their heart. So go, that's going back to the point of if they're saved, it'll, it'll show. So if they're not saved, then it will show. It's like when we look at the parables of the, of the sown seeds, I love this parable. Uh, it's like some will fall on the rocky road, some will fall mm-hmm. on the good soil, some will fall on the thorns, and you see, and, it, and what Jesus is doing is he's explaining, he's explaining, you'll see the effect of exactly where their faith stands. Uh, and, you, and you'll know by their fruits. Yeah. That, that, that gives more. But I would say we... We don't know the heart of a person. Right. So I can't tell, tell you because somebody's fallen into sin that I know for sure that person is not a believer because they've fallen into sin. Because believers still sin. 
still fall into sin, can fall into heinous sin, right? But if, when someone's using, I mean, one, well, one of the things you want to look at is how do they react when they're confronted over it? Do they care? When you take them to the scripture and you show them that this is a sin, do they acknowledge that? Do they care, right? So one of the things also is just how do they respond to the sin, right? Because the, one of the differences between a believer and an unbeliever isn't that we don't sin and they do. But the difference is how do we react when we sin, right? Do we care? Do we repent? Do we submit to the word of God? So you'd have to look at how does the person respond to it when they're confronted over it also. You also would want to look at um, are, they, are they in a position position where they're maturing and they're growing because there are people who claim to be believers maybe they are believers maybe they're brand new believers and they're coming in out of a a lifestyle that's filled with sin and it's going to take some time for them to get convicted and get get pulled out of that so they have to be receiving the word of god like chance was talking about today right being filled right you have to have the word dwelling in you and then you have to be submitting to the word so so in my life i would argue i have a point where i believe i was saved but if you looked at my life, the trajectory wasn't particularly steep and growing. I'd say it was rather flat. And if you look at the fruit, it was not that extensive. But I would also mention, I had never been in a church. And I was not being taught the word of God. And I did not know the word of God. So there's also a maturing as you're growing and you're learning the word of God. You should be seeing the person growing, right? And so... What's the situation? If someone's falling into sin, is it, is it someone who's, you know, they're receiving the word of God, they're well taught, they're, you know, all of these things, or is it someone who's in a position where they maybe just got saved and yeah, they haven't gotten to there yet? A term that, a proper term that, that, would, that would be applied to that person or that we in our teachings would use? I wouldn't use it. I don't like it. <laughs> what would you use? Aaron, could you, yeah. repeat, could you repeat the statement's last question? She asked if backsliding was like a, like a biblical term that would, would be useful for us to use, essentially. Yeah. I think there, don't quote me on this, I think there's one place in the Old Testament that's translated in one of the trans, English translations as backsliding. But you don't really see that in the, in the New Testament, that word. And, and my concern with the word is that it's usually used to say, to, to excuse a Christian, fall, someone who's claiming to be a Christian who's fallen into sin. So you say, oh, well, that person's fine. They're a believer. They've just backslid. But they're going to come back, right? And, and oftentimes that's like the parent who has a child. And the child, when they were young, made a profession. And then nothing in their life has shown anything. Except they made the profession. And the parent's like, well, they were saved back then. And now they've just backslid. And now it's been 15 years of backsliding, right? And the reality is... That person probably never knew Christ and doesn't, right? So sometimes that's used as an excuse to say, well, this person really is a believer, but they've fallen back. So I would call it falling into sin and deal with it from there, right? Okay, you're, you're claiming to be a believer. You've fallen into sin. Let's deal with it biblically. Let's confront. Are you repentant, right? How do we deal with it? And I'm not going to tell you whether I think, oh, you're not saved or you are saved. Let's just deal with the sin biblically and see what happens and see your response to it. And that should reveal where your heart is. Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but uh, I think there's a good difference between a backslider and an apostate. A backslider will fall into sin, an elect, and they temporarily fall into sin because they're restored by God. 
the means of the world or the means of the world and where apostate, what the scriptures define, is when that abandons the gospel, the true gospel, the whole. Yeah. And the evidence of that is seen more and more in, in going against it constantly. See what I'm saying? But if actually, uh, like David, or Samson, or Solomon, where they fall into sin, or backslid, however you want to use it, but they don't stay there. It's only temporary until God restores them. And then if they have roots of repentance, then God restores them, and they persevere in faith. Yeah, I would agree with that. But then how do you tell the difference between a backsliding who's actually a Christian or someone who was never a Christian in the first place and is sinning? So the problem is that's you often used. I'm not saying you're using it that way. People often use that to blur those two lines. So when, you, when you're saying this person looks like a slave to their sin, then they come back and say that this is just a believer who's backslid. Now, you won't know the reality till later when you see what the Lord does, right? But... For me, as I said, that's me. I don't really like that term. I would just say, why don't we just call it what it is? The person sin, fell into sin, and let's deal with it and see what happens. Because backslider almost sounds like, now I can put this, you know, currently in our culture, it's about take, a, take your identity as a particular thing, right? I'm a backslider. Yeah, but apostate, yeah. what they do, they start going against, publicly against the truth from what they temporarily embrace the truth. Now they have militant Sure. Sure. And they yet yeah, and they oppose the truth because they want some apparently grace. Yeah. Alright, one last one, because I think we actually kind of drifted off topic here. I'm not I'm I'm starting to lose sight of how that where we were, yeah. Where this becomes confusing is the misapplication of the term backsliding. It appears yeah. twice in Scripture, okay. and in both cases, it's describing people under judgment. Mm-hmm. One in Isaiah and one in Jeremiah. So, yeah. so um, I'm tr- what was the connection? Somebody help me. So, so the question was, so because we're talking in Hebrews about people that are rejecting, rejecting what they've been taught. You're talking about people that are rejecting the word. No, because it, it says, you know, how, it, how they, they've seen everything. Uh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So, so let me say this. So I would argue the same thing with, the un, with, with if you think somebody can commit the unpardonable sin today or something very similar, which I do believe people can, but I don't think it's the same because Christ isn't here in person. But you look at the Hebrews passages and you look at these where at some point, God's saying there's, there's no more, right? And that's what he does in the unpardonable sin. Well, how is the unpardonable sin unpardonable? Isn't every sin pardonable, right, in the end, if, because if Jesus paid for it, right? Isn't, can, is there, does it say anywhere nothing, something in particular you did that was horrible could not be pardoned? Well, there's people who've been rejecting and blaspheming the Holy Spirit and Christ and God all their lives. There's people who've gone on YouTube and they, they're tired of Christians bringing them the gospel. So they film on YouTube a video where they said, I'm going to blaspheme the Spirit on YouTube so that I can tell these Christians, don't ever talk to me about the gospel anymore because I can't be saved because I blasphemed the Spirit. And so people take this idea and they're, and they're running with it. But my understanding of that is there's a point that none of us know or can know. There's a point when God is at some point going to say, I turn you over to your sin. I harden your heart. In judgment, you're done. 
And that's what, the, what these people reach, the Pharisees and such. Now, you look at Hebrews and stuff. I, you know, I don't want to go around and say, at what point is this person at that point? I don't know. But there is a point where you are in danger, potentially, that God says, well, I've revealed all this to you, and you're still rejecting it. You're, that's it. But I'm not going to say who that is and who that isn't, because I don't know at what point that is. Um, it's, I have another passage. That we're not going to have time to get into it. But 1 John 5, about the, death, the uh, sin leading to death. There's different views on that as well. Uh, but I think that's a point where someone's committed a sin that God has decided is, this is actually believers, potentially, where God, it says brother, committing the sin. Um, so where, where God says, I'm going to take that person out. And I would say Ananias and Sapphira are an example. Where they, they, that doesn't mean they weren't believers. But their sin that they committed, God said that was so great that I'm going to take you out and kill you for it. Now, can I say that he's going to do that to this person or that person? I don't know. But I can say that there is a precedent whereby he will do that at some point, I believe, is what 1 John 5 is talking about. I don't know when that is. So I can't tell somebody, oh, yeah, he's going to do that to you. But it can happen at some point. So that's what I would, I would see there. You contaminate everybody else. Yeah. Somebody else had a hand up. Yeah. So is there, if someone is clearly... They clearly know scripture. They're quoting it. And um, they have clearly rejected it. They admit that they rejected it. Do you still talk about it with them or share it with them? Or, or no, how do, you, how do you engage with that person? Yeah. Cast, don't cast your purpose. I mean, they're, they're honest about their rejection. Are they willing to listen? I mean, and just go to the gospel is what I would say. Because there's a lot of people who won't listen to scripture as a whole. They'll say, I don't believe the Bible. Yeah. But you can it's, still bring them the gospel. Yeah. Well, you can still declare the gospel and call them to repent. So, yeah. I mean, most people are going to reject scripture as a whole when you first encounter them. All right. Uh, we're, we're running out of time. They're good questions, though. Um, so the point there was, uh, so what I was arguing in the second point here, then, is greater knowledge leads to greater punishment for the unbeliever. So, so kind of wrestle with that in your mind a little bit. So when you're arguing and you're saying, well, God's unjust for bringing this person, not bringing this person the gospel. The reality is if they're not a chosen person and God brings them the gospel, their judgment will be greater. Because now they've heard the gospel and they've rejected it. They know more and they're rejecting it. Now, I don't, again, I, that is not an excuse for us to say, well, I shouldn't bring this, anybody the gospel because they might get more judgment because God's also told us to bring them the gospel. Right? So, um, yeah. So think, that's one thing that's interesting to think about, though. The greater judgment if you know more. So, all right, uh, number four, that's the last point here. Uh, If such a person is genuinely seeking him, God will bring the gospel to him. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.29 talks about, From there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And uh, I would point to uh, Acts 8 where God sends, in a very miraculous way, sends Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch, who's reading Isaiah, who seems to be genuinely seeking out God, and then God sends him someone who gives him the gospel, and he gets saved. Uh, You could also look at Acts 10 with Cornelius, where Cornelius is praying. He seems he's seeking God. God arranges to send Peter to him, who brings him the gospel, and he gets saved. So you see these examples where God works, works out. He brings them the gospel so that they would get saved. And 
I mean, God knows who he, I mean, if someone is genuinely seeking God, it means John 6 that God is drawing him, right? And it means that that person is, is going to be saved because God has chosen them, if, he's, if they're actually seeking God for real. So I don't want to use that term lightly either, because there are some people who say, oh yeah, you know, my, my child or my friend is seeking God. I know, they don't, they're not a believer, but they're seeking God. Maybe. If they are, that means God's done that work in their heart, and they're going to be saved. And, you know, but, you know, maybe they're not. Maybe they're seeking some God of their own making. So, so that's a particular, you know, I mean genuinely genuinely seeking God. The person's really on that path, seeking out God. I believe God will bring them the gospel. All right, so to close on that topic, if someone makes this objection then, what I, what I would encourage you to do is try to bring the conversation to the gospel, ultimately. Right? When they say, what happens to such and such people in such and such a place is not what we're talking about right now. And it's not the most important thing right now because we're talking about what happens to you. Right? That's what we're really talking about. We're talking about you and your fate. And, uh, and some people have said, I don't know if this is helpful, but they've kind of said, if you're worried about those people, then repent and believe and bring them the gospel. Right? If you're that concerned about the tribes in X, Y, or Z country... You know, let's deal with you first. Okay, here's the gospel. Do you repent and believe? Now, go bring them the gospel so they could be saved too, right? Because it's, it's, that may or may not be helpful. I mean, it can be kind of a, like, here you go. You know, what are you talking about? But the point is that God has brought you the gospel right now, right? How are you going to respond to it? And you're objecting with these things about someone else. What does that have to do with what we're talking about right now? Right? And then they're accusing God of injustice. It's like, no, 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 come back and look at the gospel. God sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of those he would save. So why are we looking over there and crying injustice? Look at the love of God and what he did. Right? So bring it back to the gospel uh, rather than letting them get you too far along on that uh, path. All right. Um, I want to leave you a little time to talk in groups about the questions at the end. So I'm going to kind of skip the last part. Um, I mean, I think you probably are pretty familiar with this anyway, but this is basically when somebody argues that they have a problem that we say uh, Jesus is the only way, right? Because we we've looked at various religions where they say, cool, we'll add Jesus to our gods or our gurus, but not cool if you say Jesus is the only way. Right. And so some people get hung up on the what's called the exclusivity of the gospel, meaning there's no other way. Um, so, you know, you could you could go through. But I mean, John 14, 6 is that's the place, the main place to go. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And uh, yeah, Acts four twelve. Also, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, that's all there is to it. If you believe the scripture, Jesus is the only way. That's, the that's it. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to get into that more, I, I think I wrote some stuff on your paper. Jesus is the one who went to the cross in our place. Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life that we could not live. Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. Did anybody else do that? So then who else could even qualify to be our savior, Right. Nobody else did that. So he's the only one. It makes sense, right? How would he be that he allowed his son to go and suffer that 
death for our redemption. What kind of God would he be to serve if there's multiple ways and then he did that? Yeah, yeah. So why would he do that? That's right. All right, so yeah, there's, so there's a few things on there if you want to look at that. Um, but let's, uh, let's spend the rest of the time. I gi- I've given you some questions to discuss together. And uh, yeah, I'll just kind of go around and see how you're doing. Let me know if you have any questions.